Hello and welcome to Battlecast. I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and today we're slipping right back into the sausage processor. It's the second Japanese invasion of Korea, a conflict which is also sometimes called the Imjin War. I should let you know this is part four of a four-part series, so if you're just tuning in, you may want to pick up the story at the beginning. But if you're doing 75 on the interstate and can't change the episode, welcome and drive safe. It's been a hell of a week here at the Wolf household. It all started when my son walked into my bedroom and started puking everywhere. It looked like an old school water sprinkler going off. <coughs> he was covered in sweat and his eyes were glazed over like a Krispy Kreme donut. I thought I had stepped into the film The Exorcist. Keep away! The soul is mine! It turns out he had COVID and now we've all got it. My wife had a particularly bad case, so I've been changing diapers and doing laundry like a good housewife. On top of that, my boss decided to give me a verbal vasectomy this month because I asked, quote, too many questions, end quote, during one of our many mandated training sessions, which also reminded me of The Exorcist. So this show is dedicated to all of you who are underappreciated and sick of COVID. I know I am. All right. Before we can do anything else, I've got to thank Jim from Parts Unknown and Trevor, also hailing from Parts Unknown, for buying us around. I've also got to thank Blake from Chapel Hill for buying us around. Blake works the night shift as a lab tech and likes to listen to the show while he mixes chemicals in giant vats. He told me if he makes a mistake, it can actually blow up the building he's working in. All I can say is steady hands, Blake, be careful. And if you want to buy us around, head over to thebattlecast.com and hit that Make a Donation button. But now I'll let Samurai Master Yamamoto Sudatomo lead us into the next segment. Quote, The way of revenge lies in simply forcing your way into a place and being cut down. There is no shame in this. By thinking that you must complete the job, you will run out of time. By considering things like how many men the enemy may have, time drags on, and in the end you will give up. No matter if the enemy has a thousand men, there is fulfillment in simply standing them off and being determined to cut them all down, starting from one end to the other. You will finish what needs doing. The way of the samurai is found in this death. From the Hagakuri, the book of the samurai. Stephen Turnbull provides an excellent summary of the events that led to a resumption of the Imjin War in 1597, so I'll just quote him, quote, The second Japanese invasion of Korea in 1597 marked the beginning of a new phase in a conflict that had now changed from being a convoluted and much delayed invasion of China to an operation with much simpler objectives. Korea, and only Korea, was now the target the partition of the country, and the seizure of its southern provinces being Hideyoshi's only war aim. The second invasion was therefore destined to become what the first invasion had never been, a Korean war. Poor Korea had insulted Hideyoshi by refusing to cooperate in his invasion of China. As a result, this unfortunate country, stripped of most of its resources by the first invasion, was the chosen victim for the second, and half its territory was to be the conqueror's prize, end quote. To put it succinctly, since Korea had failed to willingly help Hideyoshi conquer China, he was now planning on teaching them a lesson one way or another. The signs of impending war were everywhere. 
The negotiations between Korea and Japan were going nowhere. The Chinese Ming Emperor kept expecting the Japanese to submit to his rule as a precondition for peace, which wasn't about to happen. For their part, the Japanese continued to fortify their bases in the southeast of Korea. Every now and then, during the negotiations which took place for a little over four years, the Chinese would suddenly demand the Japanese withdraw all their troops from Korea. Instead of complying, the samurai would withdraw their sick and wounded and maybe give up two or three untenable forts. As a consequence, both sides were never really happy and both sides continued to expect another conflict, which is in fact what eventually happened. Everything came to a head on October 23, 1596, when Ming ambassadors arrived at Hideyoshi's court in mainland Japan. From the first day, things did not go well. Hideyoshi, the daimyo who had conquered the petty fiefdoms of Japan and established one national state, refused to bow to the Chinese ambassadors. This in itself was a scandal. But the next day, Hideyoshi held a banquet for the Ming representatives. He was dressed in the imperial robes and crown the Chinese ambassadors had sent him. He thought the Chinese had come to make an equitable peace, which would lead to increased trade between Japan and China, along with intermarriage between the leading families of the two kingdoms. Moreover, Hideyoshi expected large swaths of Korea would be given over to his rule. That was the peace he was expecting to sign. Then he asked a Buddhist monk to read the peace treaty in his own native Japanese. The treaty itself was written in Chinese, and Hideyoshi had never read or heard it before. A volcano suddenly explodes, sending lava pouring across peaceful, verdant forests. Destruction, where once there had been peace. Ruin, where once there had been plenty. When Hideyoshi heard the terms of the treaty the Chinese had asked him to sign, he first bubbled and then exploded a second Mount St. Helens. A modern historian describes the event like this, quote, the following day, Hideyoshi held a banquet for the Ming envoys. He wore his Chinese crown and robes and sat surrounded by the generals who had served him in Korea, all of whom were now gaily decked out in the trappings of Chinese princes. All was well until Hideyoshi ordered his diplomatic expert to read aloud in translation the document of investiture from the Ming Emperor. As the Zen monk concluded his speech, Hideyoshi realized for the first time that not one of his seven demands was included, and that the whole ceremony he had just undergone was no more than an insulting attempt to try to make him the conqueror of Korea, a vassal of China. There was no trade agreement, no provinces, and certainly no Chinese princesses. In a tremendous rage, as furious as it was understandable, Hideyoshi tore the robes off his own back and flung the crown onto the palace floor. The peace negotiations were at an end. End quote. From that day forward, the Japanese were diligent worker bees, sending supplies, building up forces, and expanding fortresses in Korea. All the Koreans could do was plan for the inevitable Japanese onslaught, but instead of building their defenses, the Koreans were hampered by infighting. Moreover, they did the unthinkable. The backstabbing Korean leaders put Admiral Yi Sun-sin, the man who had single-handedly saved the entire nation, on trial for disobeying the Korean king. In truth, Sun Sin had only failed to act on poor intelligence. Intelligence, which as it turned out, was deliberately planted by a Japanese paid spy. Yi had made the right decision. 
His reward was imprisonment and humiliation. Stripped of all his titles, Sun Sin was forced to fight as a common soldier. He eventually regained his former position, but by then much of southern Korea was already destroyed. And so, when the samurai invasion came, Korea would face it without the service of her most exceptional commander. This is how humanity treats its greatest leaders, its sensitive and diligent servants, with beatings and dank jails, crucifixions, and persecutions. At the same time, Wan Kun, who took over the Korean Navy after Admiral Sun Sen was humiliated, set about destroying the fighting ability of this marvelous battle group. A contemporary Korean government official details what Wan Kun did, quote, as soon as Wan Kun physically arrived at the Navy's Hansen Island, he changed all the rules established by Yi Sun Sin and eliminated the officers and soldiers who were close to Admiral Yi. Consequently, most of the soldiers naturally resented and hated Wan Kun. When Yi Sun Sin had been in command, he held meetings day and night discussing military affairs with his aides. His meetings were open, even to the lower-ranking soldiers, even to the janitors, if they had something to say about the matter under discussion. Day and night he labored for his people. Wan Kun, on the other hand, brought his concubine to the house of Yi Sun Sin, and he prevented the people from entering his residence by setting up fences around the building. Thus, his aides and soldiers rarely saw his face. He also enjoyed drinking, but he couldn't handle his liquor. He abused his power and punished his men as he pleased. The soldiers whispered, If we ran into the enemy, we would have no choice but to flee, you know. Disgusted, his own officers kept silent and barely spoke up. As a result, his commands were carried out poorly or even blatantly ignored. End quote. This is what happens when the inept rule over their superiors, when theory rules over fact, when unelected managers who never leave their offices lord over the workers who keep the machines going in the first place. Thus it was, thus it is, thus it ever shall be. Now, the Japanese struck first at the Battle of Chilchongyang. This was the Japanese's only major naval victory in the entire Imjin conflict. Because Sun Sin was dismissed from office, the Japanese walked over his incompetent replacement, Won Kyun, as easily as Americans can go into debt. Won Kyun foolishly rushed the entire Korean Navy against the massing Japanese forces without scouting the Japanese Navy beforehand. It was a bloodbath. Wan Kun's worn-out men, tired from days of grueling labor, lost 30 ships in the initial blundering assault before Wan Kun withdrew to an island. However, the Japanese arrived at the same island first, and when Wan Kun landed his men in order to resupply his ships, the samurai island garrison attacked the Koreans. Wan Kun didn't even know the Japanese were on the island. 400 veteran sailors were lost in this attack, cut down by the samurai on the island. Consequently, Wan Kyun was forced to withdraw into the relative safety of the narrow straits of Chilchonyang. But the samurai realized Admiral Wan Kyun was incompetent, and they decided to press their attack using hundreds of ships in a night raid on the dispirited Koreans. Now, this was the perfect tactic for the Japanese because the Koreans had superior artillery to the samurai. From a distance, the advantage lay with the Koreans, but now, bottled up in the narrow waters of the Chilchonyang Straits and under cover of darkness, the Japanese would close the gap and fight the Koreans at point-blank range, striking before Wan Kun even knew they were there. The attack was as easy as lying to a woman. First, the Japanese 
quietly intermingled their ships with the Korean boats. The entire time, the Japanese used fire control to keep the unsuspecting Koreans lulled into a sense of security. The Koreans had no idea death, like a metastasizing cancer, was intermixing with them. Then a cannon fired three shots. It was the agreed-upon signal for the Japanese vessels to open up on the Koreans. One minute, everything was as pacific as a Florida beach on the Gulf of Mexico, lapping waves, peacefully whispering against the Korean ships, the ocean taking the Koreans in its hands and gently rocking them like babes in a nursery. The next second, the world exploded. Put yourself in the battle. There are simultaneous screams from all around you, men yelping for help, another bellowing about the attack. You look across the deck and see a man suddenly impaled through his eyeball by an arrow. Another boat bursts into flames and seemingly instantaneously, as if Odin himself had magically combusted the ship as a punishment for infidelity. Flaming fire arrows winked in the night sky like Georgia lightning bugs, blinking flames, hissing through the air, skewering men, sitting billowing sails, on fire. The Japanese beat drums and gongs as they attacked, which further disoriented their enemies. The way screaming fans can suck the will out of a visiting Division II football team facing down the Alabama Crimson Tide. Two minutes later, screaming battle-hardened samurai fighting in well-organized units are on your boat and attempting to decapitate you. Your own men are disorganized and ill-trained for hand-to-hand -hand combat. As General Sun Sin, the man who had commanded your navy for the past five years, never permitted the Japanese to engage his navy at close range where the enemy held all the advantage. You simply have not been trained for what is happening to you. Imagine this battle and what it sounds like, the ships groaning as they slap into one another, wood on wood, flames hissing from both near and far, animalistic screams of dying men, coupled with cat-like mewing of delirious men, the wooden floor slick with blood and disgorged innards, sausage resembling intestines smushing like bananas under the feet of the men fighting as the world combusts around them, the Koreans unorganized, wide-eyed, hurling themselves into the water, better to face the indifferent sea than the willingly malevolent blades of the samurai. There are constant splashes like 40-pound bass wiggling against the fisherman's line as men swim and detritus lobs into the water. There's the smell of cooking meat as men burn alive. And that's when the fish began to eat in the Straits of Chilchonyang that night. The crabs and shrimp reversing their natural position on the food chain and setting down to a feast on us as we had once feasted on them. A cornucopia of unnatural digestion under the lapping waves of the wine-dark sea. Countless Korean vessels were lost. Countless Korean men were killed. If Sun Sin had been in command, the defeat never would have happened. But Admiral Yi wasn't in command because of the petty jealousies of Sun Sin's rivals, along with the contaminating influence of Japanese money. Never had a spy brought such prodigious results before. And what happened to Wan Kyun? Yu Song Yong picks up the story like this, quote, Wan Kyun fled to the beach, abandoning his post and his boat. He tried to climb a hill, but was too fat to move fast. Thus, he sat down under a pine tree, abandoned by his own soldiers, who scattered away to save themselves. Some said that Wan Kyun was killed by the enemy, but no one knew for sure what really happened to him." More than 200 Korean ships were lost in that battle, along with innumerable veteran sailors. The Korean Navy almost ceased to exist. About 12 ships still remain. 12! 
a key Korean naval base was burned and abandoned. Thousands of Korean survivors who made it to shore were simply massacred by the pitiless samurai dutifully waiting for them on the shoreline. The Japanese control of the sea between Japan and Korea was now almost total. Many tens of thousands would regret the black day in Korean history because now there was nothing to stand in the way between them and the merciless war veterans of Japan. Such is the bitter price nations pay for petty jealousy and abject corruption. And so the Japanese poured their forces into the Chola province of Korea, a region that had previously been spared the ravages of war due to the actions of Admiral Sun Sin, now drank deeply from the bitter cup of inhumanity. Two Japanese armies marched out from their coastal enclaves. Both armies had one goal, the capital of Chola province, Shonju. I should point out that Chola province is located on the southeast of the Korean peninsula. The armies advanced by two different routes, and their march was a synonym of destruction for numerous villages and towns in their path. Too long had these effeminate Korean peasants stood in the way of their rightful masters. Now the Koreans would learn the folly of denying the rightful claims of overlordship by the sons of the goddess Amaterasu. By divine right, the ruthless Japanese marched, and there were none who could withstand them. One army advanced along a left-hand path from Pusan, and so was ingeniously called the Army of the Left. It numbered about 50,000 men. The second army marched on the right-hand path towards Shanju, and it numbered more than 60,000 men. Almost all were veterans. Along with coastal garrisons and various reinforcements, the total number of Japanese soldiers in South Korea amounted to about 141,000 men. But there was a key difference between the invasion of 1592 and this second invasion in 1597. During the previous campaign, Korea was just a stepping stone for Hideyoshi to conquer China. Now Korea and the Korean people and all they own were the objective themselves. Stephen Turnbull explains, quote, Korea was no longer just the road to China. It was itself the final objective. In the mixed emotions of revenge, plunder, and conquest conspired to lift the savagery that had attended the first invasion to new heights of energy and to plumb new depths of horror. The fury that at Pusan had led the invaders to decapitate dogs and cats, was now channeled and made clinical as Korea began to suffer from planned mayhem, end quote. The terror began on September 15, 1597. One devout Buddhist monk served as a chaplain for the Japanese. This is what this one monk witnessed, quote, I had hardly disembarked from the ship when the men were stealing things and butchering people. It was a situation of plunder, and my face was a mask of shock that our men could do such things. The next day I saw houses being burned, and I wrote this following poem. They call this the Red Country, but black is the smoke that rises from the burning buildings. On both fields, mountains, and castles, the Japanese are burning everything, putting an end to the people or fastening chains or bamboo collars around their slave necks. Parents are slaughtered while the onlooking children scream for pity, but their pleads are rewarded with at best slavery, and at worst, death. The next day our men committed violent and disgraceful atrocities and serious crimes that are not fit even to be written down. They shamed me to even see them. 
On the third day, hundreds of parents were slaughtered in front of their children, and the little ones were led away into slavery. It was like watching the tortures of hell's tormenting demons. A few weeks later, the army came to the first large town called Nam Wan, end quote. The monk was about to see one of the most savage battles of the entire conflict. The fortress of Nam Wan was built on a flat plain in a rectangle. Each side of the rectangle housed a gate. Each corner of the rectangle had a square that jutted out from each corner and allowed defenders to fire into the flanks of an attacking army. The walls themselves were 24 feet tall with a 20-foot deep ditch surrounding the walls. The ditch was filled with hedgehog-appearing abatis, which are sharpened wooden stakes that resemble a fence made out of spears. Inside the fort were 6,000 men, 3,000 of them Chinese, who had the unenviable job of holding back 55,000 Japanese war veterans. Nam Wan was a Rubik's Cube of pain. On the first day of battle, eyewitnesses remembered it rained on the men like a waterfall. Ducks would have been afraid to go out in that deluge, but the soldiers actually fought in it anyway. The main attack began at 10 p.m., a night assault. Tens of thousands of Japanese attacked Nam Wan from all sides. If you viewed it from 10,000 feet in the air, it would have resembled a siege from the video game Rome Total War. Ladders came up on all sides, and the men formed into protractor-shaped groups as they jumped jostled for the honor of being the first samurai inside the castle walls. A Japanese eyewitness describes what it was like when he hit the wall. Quote, From within the castle, great stones were thrown and fell like rain, and there were many wounded and dead. To add to this, the stone walls were high and coated over with plaster, so they could not easily make their way inside. Our men set up scaling ladders, and although one or two fell, they did make their way inside. End quote. At the same time, on the western side of the rectangle, a samurai named Matsura Shigenobu had taken a section of his wall, his sword drinking the moon, glittering like a rich American woman's engagement ring. The angry sound of steel on steel resembled a discordant carol of the bells, a cacophony of metallic shrieking. The Korean defender's limited armor was nothing compared to the steel of the samurai. A country grandma, her feet as nimble in the kitchen as a veteran firefighter working flames, easily slices hoop cheese from a bright orange block in her hands, landing each slice of cheese onto the open and waiting biscuit, a deft movement practiced over years of valued partnership or oppressive patriarchy, depending on your worldview. Just as easily, the samurai sliced through the pajama-clad Koreans, leaving rectangles of quivering humanity on the floor of the castle walls. Matsura grinned as a berserker-like rage came over him. His enemies cowered before him the way the elves shrink before Sauron in the prologue to the Fellowship of the Ring film. That's when one of Matsura's retainers suggested he hoist up his family's battle flag. Matsura smiled, even bright at the suggestion, a dope fiend who had just stolen a bottle of fentanyl. His banner laughed in the wind, tearing at it in the rainstorm. At the sight of the banner, the Japanese renewed their efforts, their morale higher than the International Space Station. A modern historian explains what happened next. Quote, in preparation for the assault, the Japanese foot soldiers scoured the nearby fields, cutting the rice crop and tying the stalks into large bundles, which were thrown into the moat at chosen positions. So many were collected that a huge and unsteady mound extended to the level of the ramparts of the castle. 
While rifle fire raked the walls with fire, bamboo scaling ladders were added to the pile in order to allow a determined assault. As the ramp neared completion, fire arrows were loosed at the nearest defending tower, and when this was set alight, the samurai rushed onto the huge heap of rice bales. The samurai led the charge, while behind them, the Japanese foot soldiers rushed forward. Different flags now flew triumphantly from various parts of the wall. The dark blue banners of Ata, with the Chinese ideograph that formed the first syllable of his name, were prominent on the southern wall, and when they descended into the town, Numerous single combats began as the civilians huddled inside their homes. Kishi Rokodayu obtained the first decapitated head. Then Okochi killed two other men. Throughout the streets of the village, men squared off in single combat, dancing with each other until death. An eyewitness recalls one fight like this, quote, the master samurai Okachi remembered it was the 15th day of the 8th lunar month and so he put down his blood-stained blade and bowed in veneration towards sacred Japan. Afterwards, he cut off the noses of his victims and placed them in a wax paper sack. Then, using two blades, Okachi cut at the right growing of the enemy on horseback and he tumbled down. As his growing was excruciatingly painful from this one assault, the enemy fell off on the left-hand side. There were some samurai standing nearby, and three of them struck at the mounted enemy to take his head off. Four men had now cut him down. But, as his plan of attack had been that the abdominal cut would make him fall off on the left, Okachi came running around so that he would not be deprived of the head, and he took it." End quote. Traffic flows through an interstate like a river, until a semi-truck jackknifes and traffic suddenly hammers to a stop. Just so, the flow of Japanese warriors came to a sudden stop when the head of the onrushing attackers came face to face with a giant Korean almost seven feet tall. He was dressed all in black and wielded an extraordinary long sword. The man was a Korean Goliath. That's when two samurai attempted to catch the giant in his armpit with their spears, but only ended up ensnaring their spear tips in his armor. Even so, the giant's arms were now pinned back and he could only ineffectually wave his sword as harmless as a toddler waving a stick. That's when Okachi methodically cut the seven-foot-tall men into quivering one-foot-long pieces. Suddenly, a small group of organized Koreans attacked the exposed Okachi, knocking him down in the process and slashing his chest as he attempted to get up, carving three X-shaped bars of blood into Okachi's breast. That's when Okachi's best friend and fellow samurai Koike came to his aid, driving off most of the Koreans while Okachi regained his feet. Despite his wounds, Okachi faced down a Korean warrior in single combat for a while. The two men sized each other up the way Tom Sawyer hesitated before attacking a new kid in his town. That's when the Korean lunged for Okachi. Throwing everything on the line, the Koreans face a study in concentration. Okachi, quick as a man can observe the proportions of a woman, dodged the blow and landed his own. There was a war mist of blood which sprayed across Akachi as his Korean opposite went down. Then Akachi saw it. The tip of his own middle finger was dangling on a string of flesh. The Korean had cut his finger off. Akachi took the Korean's head in payment and pressed on in his attack. 
Then, in an alleyway, he came face to face with a noble Korean bowman. This was no anonymous peasant, but a fellow noble warrior worthy of respect. Two times the Korean let his bow sing, and two times an arrow pierced Okachi's arm. All the while, Okachi bridged the distance between the two men as fast as the syllables of the words I'm speaking follow one another. In an instant, the two nobles were facing off, strings of their sweat-clumped black hair playing in the breeze, screams and fires all around them. The wind, far from being agreeable, was actually breathing a noisome heat into the men's bleeding bodies. For a few seconds, the two noblemen faced each other, sizing each other, respect and death playing behind their dark eyes. Then the Korean transformed into a deadly hummingbird, his arms striking out imperceptibly, and Okachi's body responding through muscle memory. Two well-trained warriors dancing with one another, the culmination of two lifetimes of training. Their blades connect, and the two warriors drop back into a defensive posture. Then the men size each other up still more. Again, the Korean slashes out, this time catching Okachi in the sleeve. Both men's arms fast as striking snakes. A small rivulet of blood greased Okachi's arm. This Korean was good. Then the Korean nobleman came alive. A flurry of movement. Okachi didn't even think about a response. His sword parries were involuntary. The way your hand instinctively draws back from a burning fire. Both were nervous system pulsation quick. Twice more, Okachi's arm was cut. The flesh and slash thread intermingling with one another. Driven back without thinking, Okachi's heart was in his throat. Then the Korean, almost imperceptibly, slowed for a half a second to draw a breath. That was all it took. Okachi's body moved as one. The way Jack Nicholson hits a golf ball. All his well-practiced body systems working as one solidified unit of violence. His sword moved faster than sight, splitting the Korean's throat and leaving his head rolling on the ground. For a second, the Korean's headless body still stood, scarecrow still, and then it crumpled to the ground before the blank visage of the dismembered head. Okachi's arm hung in the air for a second or two, the way a mighty tree branch stolidly fingers the air for years. Finally, almost in disbelief that he had won the single combat, Okachi recovered the unblemished head of his enemy. Later, Okachi would try to identify the man he had killed. He showed the bodiless head to some captured Koreans who burst out in tears. It was the overall Korean commander of the garrison. He had died fighting at his post. Literally thousands of single combats and massacres took place at Nam Wan. Many of the details are lost to history, but the results are not. A modern historian details the grisly aftermath of the battle. Quote, of the 3,726 decapitated heads counted that day, only the Korean leader that Okachi had killed was kept intact. The others were discarded after the noses had been removed, the beginning of the process of nose collection in lieu of heads that was to become such a feature of the second invasion. Insisting upon proof of his soldiers' loyalty and achievements, like the reward-giving generals of the ancient civil wars, Hideyoshi began to receive a steady stream of shipments of these ghastly trophies, pickled in salt and packed into wooden barrels, each one meticulously enumerated and recorded by the inspector's unit before leaving Korea. In Japan, they were suitably interred in a mound near Hideyoshi's Great Buddha, and there they remain to this day, inside Kyoto's least mentioned and most often avoided 
tourist attraction, the Grassy Burial Mound that bears the erroneous name of the Mound of Ears, end quote. The men fought into the night, literally painting the white walls of Nam Wan red with blood. The next day, the civilian survivors wailed bitterly as an eyewitness walked in shock around the streets of the town. The eyewitness later wrote in his diary that the bodies covered the ground around Nam Wan like grains of sand. As he walked, he found dismembered corpses for miles around the fortresses, as if the Japanese had played with the bodies of their victims after they had killed them, an entire army of serial killers. The eyewitness was actually right. The victors had played with the corpses. They had done things to them. As Stephen Turnbull notes, quote, for one contemporary chronicler, the slaughter of civilians was just another phase in the military operation, he writes. From early dawn of the following morning, we gave chase and hunted them in the mountains and scoured the villages for the distance of one day's travel. When they were cornered, we made a wholesale slaughter of them. During a period of ten days, we seized ten thousand of the enemy, but we did not cut off their heads. We cut off their noses, which told us how many heads there were, see? By this time... We had more than 2,000. Two days after the battle, the leftward marching Japanese army came to the provincial capital, Shanju, their primary objective of the campaign. They found a ghost town. Imagine your state or provincial capital, Quebec City, Austin, or Frankfurt, Kentucky, just totally empty, like the beginning of the film A Quiet Place. How surreal would such a place be? The signs of life would be everywhere, and yet there would be no life. The way African despots irrationally build magnificent cities in the middle of jungles, which sink back into complete disuse upon the despots' overthrow. The way Zaire President Mobutu Sese Seko's lavish palace rots in the middle of nowhere. And so Chola Province, the great prize that had eluded the Japanese during the first invasion, was now firmly in Japanese hands. All it had cost was tens of thousands of lives and slaves. The very next day after the Japanese Army of the Left's victory at Nam Wan, the Army of the Right achieved a spectacular triumph over the Koreans at the fort of Hwang Sok Son. It was a walkover. Thousands of Koreans were killed, captured, or scattered, and the Army of the Right continued its unstoppable advance across Korea, a second Sherman's march to the sea. A few days later, the Army of the Right linked up with the Army of the Left at Shanju. The two armies were then reorganized, and the main body started to press north into the heart of Korea. Then, on October 17, 1597, at a place called Chikson, the Japanese advanced scouts ran headlong into the main Chinese army. There was no way the few thousand samurai scouts could defeat the Chinese, but if the Japanese scouts retreated, the Chinese would take an excellent position on high ground just a few miles away. There was no way the Japanese could win, but if they delayed the Chinese army long enough for the main Japanese force to come up, the Japanese would occupy the high ground and defeat the Chinese overall. In short, the small Japanese scouting group decided to sacrifice themselves in order to delay but not defeat the Chinese army. It was a free will sacrifice. They turned themselves into cannon fodder. This is what Rene Guénon means when he talks about traditional civilizations being organized against individualism. The Japanese scouts took up position on the far end of an earthen bridge the Chinese would have to cross in order to claim the high ground. 
A contemporary chronicler puts these words in the mouth of the Japanese commander of the advanced scouts. Quote, If the bridge is crossed by the great Chinese army, then surely they will attack our main body. So we must accept that only one man may be left alive for every ten we kill. We must defend the bridge and prevent the enemy from crossing at all costs. End quote. The Japanese attacked the advancing Chinese in two geometric waves. Lines of riflemen wielded their massed primitive firearms, which were inaccurate in single combat, but deadly when massed together. They opened fire on the Chinese lines, filling the battlefield with opaque smoke. Then, out of the smoke, like college football players from South Georgia during the introduction segment of the biggest game of their lives, a line of samurai swordsmen plunged headlong into the Chinese battle lines, their whip-like arms sending glistening steel into Chinese flesh. Inexorably, the superior Chinese numbers began to drive the Japanese defenders back, leaving bodies on the ground like leaves in fall. But then the Japanese main body arrived on the scene and immediately sent men across the bridge in support of the advanced units giving their lives for the sons of Amaterasu. The Chinese were driven back where they regrouped for still another attack. Meanwhile, the Japanese withdrew all of their men across the bridge and onto the high ground. The two sides fought over the hill all day long, one side working out an advantage as reinforcements came in, only to find themselves slowly beaten back when the other side's reinforcements linked up with their main body. It was essentially a stalemate. Even though the Japanese still held the high ground at the end of the day, that night both sides disengaged from one another. The Japanese Japanese decided to occupy a fortress near Seoul and await reinforcements before pressing on to capture the city. But the reinforcements never came, and the Japanese never left their fort, and the reason the reinforcements never came was one man. His name was Admiral Yi Sun Sin. Admiral Sun Sin had only 12 ships in his command. Against these, the Japanese could field anywhere from 50 to 130 vessels. Consequently, Admiral Yi engaged the Japanese in a number of delaying tactics as he desperately sought a way to destroy the larger Japanese forces. That's when the Admiral remembered Myongyang Strait, a narrow seaway on the southwest tip of Korea. The ocean lane was unique for one reason, and Stephen Turnbull explains why in his excellent summation of this sea battle with these words, quote, the waterway passing through the strait is one of the fastest in all Korean waters, running between 9.5 and 11.5 knots at its highest rate. It was also known to change direction from north to west and then back again every three hours. This phenomenon was the only advantage he had because the Japanese possessed 133 ships while he still had only 12 vessels. The historic battle, which the Koreans call the Miracle at Myongyang, was fought in the morning of October 26, 1597. As Yi had anticipated, the Japanese fleet of 133 ships approached the strait on a favorable tide, while Yi took up his position in the open sea just to the north of the strait. When the Japanese had advanced midway up Myongyang, Yi sailed into the attack, and his tiny flotilla was of course immediately surrounded, but Yi stuck firmly to his time-honored tactics of keeping the Japanese ships beyond boarding distance and bombarding them with cannon and fire arrows. As a result, only one of the Korean ships was boarded, and Yi's diary notes seeing the enemy hordes like black ants climbing up and we ship, but using sharp-edged clubs, long spears, or sea-washed stones, the borders were repulsed. 
At one stage in the battle, a captured Japanese soldier on Admiral Yi's flagship looked down at the struggling bodies in the sea and noticed a dead samurai floating in an ornate robe. Recognizing the man as his commander, the prisoner let out an exclamation of surprise, which alerted the Koreans to the trophy they had come across. So they hauled the corpse on board. I commanded my men to cut the body into pieces, and from that time the morale of the enemy was greatly affected, wrote Yi. The high-ranking victim was identified as Kurashima Mishifusa, brother of the late Kurashima Mishiyuki, killed in 1592. As the fight progressed, the tide turned and began to carry the Japanese ships back along the strait. The Korean ships continued to harass them, destroying vessels out of all proportion to their relative numbers. In his diary, Yi claims that 31 Japanese ships were lost before they retreated, but the total was probably much higher. And as it happened just nine days after the stalemate battle at Chikson, the extra psychological pressure the Navy victory applied to the Japanese decision-making process was considerable. End quote. Admiral Yi Sun Sin had yet again saved the Korean nation, saved their culture, their language, their literature from extirpation. He saved the Korean children and women from debasing slave collars and licentious beds. Against all odds, he spit in the face of fickle luck and embraced cold calculation as his goddess. If only we had leaders such as Admiral Yi, how much better all our peoples might be. One man can make a difference, and if anyone says they can't, you just tell them to look up Admiral Yi Sun Sin and then shut their lying mouths. Character, intelligence, willpower, these are the things that separate the worthy from the unworthy. A man like Admiral Sun Sin should have more in life than the rest of us, because through men like him the security of the rest of us is guaranteed. When the news of Admiral Yi's victory reached the Japanese commanders on the outskirts of Seoul, they called a meeting to discuss the situation. For a while, no one spoke, but if our HD cameras had existed back then and could have seen their faces, they would have told the whole story in high definition. There would be no grand march on Seoul. Korea would not become the next province of Japan. The Japanese who had died and the Koreans they had killed ultimately changed nothing. Without resupply and reinforcements, the Japanese advance was doomed against the teeming hordes China was willing and able to throw at them. And so the samurai army withdrew back towards the southeastern coast of Korea, stopping only to loot and pillage the areas they had not struck on their march north. They stole everything they could, including women and children, and burned the rest down. The few remaining cities were burned, including invaluable religious sites. The great Buddha burned just as easily as the waste management center. The Japanese expected no mercy, and they gave none. Yu Seongyong, a high-ranking Korean official at the time, describes the samurai's scorched earth withdrawal with these words, quote, The Japanese army withdrew. While they were retreating, they trampled down three of our provinces. Everywhere they went, they set fire to the houses and killed our people. When they caught our people, they cut off their noses with no exceptions, end quote. And so by the time winter came in 1597, the Japanese inhabited an extended line of coastal enclaves which were well fortified. When they looked out over their fortifications walls, they could see an endless region of desolation, a second Hades. The samurai smiled when they looked out on the fields of ruin where sturdy houses and golden temples had once stood. They were a people without pity. 
But there was no return to an easy life in the coastal defense towns. Everywhere the Koreans pressed the attack against the Japanese-held coastal forts, besieging them and knocking them out one by one during the year of 1598. By now, the samurai brutality extended to their own Japanese peasants. No one was spared as the Korean slaves and Japanese peasants labored to make the few remaining outposts impregnable. One historian describes the situation in 1598 with these words, quote, Few incidents illustrate the obsessive savagery of the Korean campaign better than the cruel treatment meted out by the Japanese army against their own fellow countrymen. After all, the peasants they were flogging were men who would be expected to till the lands of the same samurai overlords when they returned to Japan. But in the unreal atmosphere of the Korean campaign, there was no thought for the future other than the immediate short-term goal of completing the defenses. With no distinction being made between day and night, writes one contemporary, men are made to exceed their personal limits. They are beatings for the slightest mistake in performing a task such as tying knots. In many cases, I have witnessed this is the last ever occasion on which the person gets into trouble. And in his diary entry for December 23, 1597, he makes one of the most despairing statements of all. I am fearful of all these things, he writes. Hell cannot be in any other place except here. End quote. Finally, the Chinese Ming army arrived at a key Japanese fort called Ulsan on January 29, 1598. They harassed the fort by night and then sent their main attack careening in at dawn. Say what you want about the samurai elite, but they were brave. One eyewitness describes a warrior named Rizi, who wielded his blade like a water wheel, slaying 15 attackers of the enemy until he himself was cut down. When three of Rizi's fellow samurai found his body, they were so distressed that they were not able to die with him that they killed themselves by cutting open their bellies and spilling their guts across the stony walls of the castle. End quote. <laughs> Meanwhile... The Japanese defenders at Ulsan began falling back to the inner fortifications while a 15-year-old samurai named Yoshimi demonstrated what teenagers can do with the right training. He ordered his men to save their arrows until they were sure to hit the onrushing Ming soldiers. After he unleashed a barrage of arrows, he personally led a charge to throw the attacking Chinese off balance. He later fought his way back into the fort, having saved countless of his countrymen with his reckless bravery. However, at another place in the conflict, a large number of Japanese were cut off and surrounded. They were massacred to the last man. A modern historian picks up the story, quote, The pursuit of the stragglers continued up to the unfinished gates of Ulsan. Foot soldiers fired their guns from the ramparts to cover the withdrawal, but the Chinese were not discouraged by this and, trampling over the corpses, forced their way in, and the bar of the gate broke under the weight of the soldiers climbing over it. To divert the Chinese attack, another gate of the castle was opened and a sally was made onto the Ming flank. An eyewitness later described this scene with these words, quote, but his friend and foe were all mixed up. We could not fire our guns. A soldier who had sallied out and taken a head halfway down the slope had achieved the exploit of Yarashita, first to take a head with a spear. Then our troops, without the loss of a single man, began to pull back, end quote. After the two sides separated, the Japanese resumed their fire, which drove the Chinese off the field. At 4 a.m., the Chinese resumed the attack on Ulsan, surrounding the fort with numerous rings of troops. Asano Nagayoshi, outnumbered and desperate, was defending the eastern wall. This is what he saw, quote, 
The castle was surrounded by countless numbers of troops who were deployed in a number of rings encircling us. There were so many of them covering the ground that one could no longer distinguish between the plain and the hill, end quote. There was a huge problem for the Japanese, however. The gates of the fort were still incomplete, and the Chinese were able to penetrate the fortifications. They poured through it just as easily as a Waffle House waitress deftly pours coffee into a mug. The first thing the attackers did was let loose a barrage of fire arrows, which made all the flammable materials in the fort catch fire. The samurai kept fighting amid the burning beds and crackling timbers, wielding primitive firearms as well as swords. The malodorous smoke was so thick the defenders were unable to open their mouths or eyes as they fought, and thousands of laborers burned alive in the running flames, their flesh bubbling like the top of Mama's lasagna, turning the workers into blackened tuna. Their screams were a hymn to Satan, a praise for the futility of Kant's philosophy. And standing amid the smoking walls, the rocks beneath their feet melting the soles of their shoes, were two Japanese priests named Kenan and Ryoshin. Through the eye-stinging sweat and breath of smothering smoke, they looked over the walls and saw the entire region, alive with Chinese soldiers clambering up the walls like spider-men, wriggling like mealworms suddenly exposed to the light. The walls were literally covered with Chinese, the way bees scamper across their native hives. By 11 a.m., the first wave of Chinese were driven back, but it had cost 660 Japanese lives. But so many Chinese had fallen in battle, their commander ordered his men back. Next, out of range from the Japanese guns, the Ming soldiers built siege lines around Ulsan, hoping to starve the samurai into submission. But this was no ordinary siege. The Chinese sporadically sent human waves of determined warriors to attack the hold-up samurai. Each wave was a terror, because after cutting down one wave of Chinese, another fresh wave would come upon them, and the Japanese were driven to the brink of endurance and beyond that. Only the strong survived, the weak and the talkers were already dead. The samurai fought like they were defending the emperor himself rather than a small port in a foreign country. So many Chinese died, the fresh attackers used the heaping mounds of dead bodies to climb up and attack the fort's walls. Rotting corpses spread throughout the surrounding plains the way icing glaze encircles a Krispy Kreme donut. And over the whole tableau of death, the birds constantly circled, calling to one another. The smell was beyond description, and eyewitness remembers the unholy scene. Quote, they would put a large hook up on the wall, and 50 or even 100 men would take hold of the attached rope and pull the wall down. When this happened, we fired on them from the side, but out of 50 men, 5 or 10 still hung on and pulled till the end. It must be admitted they were very brave soldiers. The Chinaman fired a cannon. It hit Kiyomosa's bodyguard, cutting him in half at the waist, so that only that part of his body below the waist was left. When the Chinese troops in the front line went forward, they carried wooden shields on their backs. They carried these shields on their backs and walked backwards towards us. The men behind them walked along carrying half bows, flexing their fingers and blowing on them. When they drew near... And we fired our rifles in a volley. They discarded the shields and fled away. After a short while, they returned to the shields they had fetched. They looked at the names written on them and took their own shields back. Even though our rifles fired at them, they took the shields up and tried to find a way back to their own lines. It seemed they prized their shields more than their lives. End quote. What was worse is the Japanese garrison didn't even have a water well, so the men were tormented 
inside the fort by lack of water, even as they relentlessly held off human waves of determined Chinese attackers. The men slipped out small teams to gather water from the corpse-laden ponds and puddles around Ulsan. Hundreds of Japanese were captured in these little forays. The few who returned held their noses as they drank the water which teemed with bacteria from the rotting corpses, infecting the fetid water sources. Then it began to rain. The Japanese fell on their knees and thanked the gods for sending the relief. They filled their helmets with the life-giving water, splashing their faces in it and blew bubbles in the water like toddlers. It was just what they wanted, until night came with a wind blowing off the ocean that froze the wet men's clothes stiff. They looked like the Tin Man from the Wizard of Oz when they tried to fight in their frozen attire. Many wounded men froze to death in the cursed no-man's land between the two armies. The relentless wind cut the men to their bone. Both sides had their morale plummet. By this point, the Japanese were running out of food. They started roasting rotten strips of horse flesh with small fires using broken arrows as skewers. After a night where hundreds of men literally froze to death, the Ming commander offered the Japanese a short ceasefire. The samurai accepted the ceasefire as a way to gain time because they still hoped for reinforcements to break the siege. A few days later, the relieving Japanese began to arrive, the reinforcements they had been waiting for. Now the Chinese were desperate for a victory, and they decided to try one more massive assault before the Japanese could link up their two major forces. One Japanese eyewitness describes the final apocalyptic assault this way, quote, from early dawn, they attacked anew, loosing fire arrows and firing guns and cannon. And they set up scaling ladders at places where they could climb the stone walls. We threw down pine torches, cut down their ladders, and fired at them. By this time, practically everyone in the castle was either wounded or dead and buried." That's when the massive Japanese relieving force started to converge on Olson. The Chinese commander had no choice. He broke contact and withdrew. The Olson port had been saved. But the overall strategic situation hadn't changed at all. The Japanese were basically right back where they had started over five years before, clinging like barnacles to the coast of the Korean peninsula. However, there was one key difference between 1598 and 1592. Now the Japanese were outnumbered by the Chinese soldiers in Korea. The Ming Chinese fielded 100,000 men in the peninsula, and so Hideyoshi was obliged to reinforce his many fortresses along the coast. As the summer bled into the spring of 1598, the Chinese attacked three more Japanese forts. Ulsan was attacked yet again, and the Chinese were driven off yet again. Next, the Chinese threw over 36,000 men at a samurai fortification known as Sakan. It was another bloodbath. More than 30,000 Ming troops died in that single battle. Once again, the superior Japanese forts, along with their indomitable fighting spirit, Coupled with the effect of mass Japanese firearms broke the Chinese human waves that were launched against them. A similar battle took place at a fortified port called Sunshon. Once again, the Chinese were driven back with large losses. But then something neither side had expected happened. Hideyoshi, the Grand Daimyo, who had subdued and united Japan, who was directing the relentless campaign for the total control of Asia itself, died peacefully in his sleep on September 18, 1598. 
He had the blood of countless enemies on his hands. Even as he died, hundreds of thousands of men were fighting, dying, freezing, and killing one another because of his actions. But in his bed, it was warm and safe, and Hideyoshi drifted off into the next life just as easy as you can crack open a beer and sit on a lake dock in fall and watch the multicolored leaves dance in the wind. Stephen Turnbull explicates the impact of Hideyoshi's death like this, quote, on Hideyoshi's death, the administration of Japan fell into the hands of five senior daimyo, whom he had appointed to ensure the succession of his infant son Hideyori. These men knew that one of the greatest obstacles to progress in this regard was the presence of Japanese forces in Korea. But the troops had to be brought home safely, and one factor in ensuring this happened was to keep the news of Hideyoshi's death secret for as long as possible. At this point, all the Japanese now wanted from Korea in return for their departure were some token tribute goods such as tiger skins. It was a far cry from the conquest of China, the partition of Korea, and a Chinese princess. With Hideyoshi dead and the Chinese defeated, the Japanese garrisons were now heading for home all along the coast of Korea. The bloody and terrible Imjin Wars were now finally over. As negotiations between China, Korea, and Japan dragged on, the Koreans instituted a blockade of the Japanese-held ports in southern Korea. Desperate to get their men out, the Japanese decided to send 500 ships to run the blockade in order to pick up their stranded soldiers. Admiral Yi got word of what the Japanese were planning, and he anticipated what his enemy would do before they even did it. Yi figured the samurai would take the shortest route from Japan to Korea, and he was right. That's exactly what they did. Sun Sin was waiting for them. He struck on December 17, 1598. It was his last massive victory. Yi attacked the approaching Japanese in a narrow strip of water where the land was close on both sides, sort of like a long neck beer bottle. Admiral Sun Sin's attack was something out of a textbook. He just repeated the same tactics that had worked for him throughout the war. He kept his ships away from the 500 Japanese vessels and bombarded them with his superior artillery. Yet again, it was like shooting metal ducks at a carnival in South Georgia. Now, I know some of you guys in Boston don't have many carnival games where you still shoot firearms, but you've seen them in old movies, right? First one ship burst into flames and then another. Dominoes falling and there is no way to stop it. It was as if gravity itself had taken hold of the Japanese fleet and forced it onto the Korean guns. A few hours after it all began, more than 250 ships, over half of the Japanese armada, were destroyed. Admiral Yi personally led his men in combat, wielding bow and arrow and fighting like a common soldier while simultaneously directing the battle. Stephen Turnbull tells what happened next, quote, by the time that dawn was breaking, the Japanese ships were retreating, and sensing that this could be the last time for them to come to grips, Yi ordered a vigorous pursuit. It was at that moment, when victory was certain, that a Japanese gunner put a bullet in Yi's armpit. He was dead within minutes. Only three close associates saw the incident, and with his dying breath, Yi asked them to keep his death a secret, so his body was covered with a shield, and the Battle of Nor Yang continued towards its victorious conclusion. The death of Admiral Yi Sun Sen killed on board his flagship at the moment of his final victory like Nelson at Trafalgar was a tragedy that deprived Korea of its ablest leader and greatest hero. Out of 500 Japanese ships, only 50 survived. End quote. 
And so Korea's greatest son, Admiral Yi Sun-sin, passed into history, imprisoned, beaten, mistreated. He saved all the men who aided him. He gave his life when others ran away. He preferred to hear his common sailor's complaints more than the lascivious whispers of a concubine. He is the reason Korea exists as a distinct culture and people today. If only America could be so lucky. Anyway, many Japanese made it out of Korea after an arduous march by land to a safe port where they were picked up by their countrymen. Many Japanese on this last march through Korea found their roles reversed and they were massacred by the people they had once persecuted. Coins flip all the time, and so the luck of the Japanese flipped in Korea. One modern historian explains the impact of the Imjin War like this, quote, For Korea, the Imjin War was a tragedy more devastating than any other event in Korean history. Japanese forces had ravaged and despoiled the entire nation, and today's anti-Japanese sentiment can be traced back to this unprovoked Japanese invasion. The Chinese armies that came to Korea's aid were not much better. For the duration of the war, the administration and the economy were entirely disrupted. The monarchy never fully recovered from these blows. For some provinces, around 90% of the farmlands there had turned into wasteland. The Japanese slaughtering of the people markedly decreased the entire population of the nation. The Chinese were no better than the Japanese in the destruction they caused and the crimes they committed. Famine and disease ensued everywhere because of the devastation of war. There are no exact records of the number of Koreans killed and enslaved, but the number was likely hundreds of thousands. The irreplaceable cultural materials rooted out of Korea and taken to Japan included royal and government records, historical documents, art objects, paintings, priceless porcelains, tens of thousands of books, and hundreds of thousands of handmade, cast-movable metal type made over two centuries. The loss of artisans and technicians taken as slaves caused a decline in the quality of handiwork as well as in manufactured goods such as pottery and book printing. Neo-Confucian norms and values were shaken. Taxes were difficult to collect. The war with Korea caused political upheavals in Japan itself. After Hideyoshi's death in September 1598, his five-year-old son became head of his clan and Japan, but the clan's power and prestige were greatly weakened. Tokugawa Yesu, who had not dispatched his troops to Korea and thus kept his military strength intact, won the decisive Battle of Sekigahara, defeating the Toyotomi forces in October 1600 and then established himself as Shogun in 1603, end quote. The Tokugawa Shogunate lasted until 1868, when the Meiji Emperor was restored and the last samurai revolt was put down. But that's another podcast. And all right, that's another one in the books for me. Once again, I want to thank everyone who bought us around and drops us a kind note or review. You really keep us going, and I personally appreciate it. And now I want to tell you about next month's show. Next month, we're starting the definitive military history of the Battle of Berlin. We're going all the way, block by block, tank by tank, body by body. Many of the stories we're going to recount in this next series have never been heard in English. I translated them myself. What I'm going to do starting next week has never been done before. I've made the libraries of Europe, Canada, and the U.S. work overtime in preparation for this show just for you. Because I believe in work and I believe in character, I'll show you what it's like to go all the way. I've worked on this upcoming series for years, and it's going to be something very special. I hope you'll join me then. But until then, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I'm wishing you good times and good weather with good people. Bye.